Hello and welcome to the Music History Project. Today we have part two of our two-part series all about Motown. So get ready, because here it comes. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's yours. <laughs> Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right, welcome back to Motown. There's so much to talk about, you know, thank goodness uh, we have a little bit more time to take care of business here on All About Motown. <laughs> I'm going to try too hard. <laughs> Give me just a little more time. <laughs> well, welcome back, everybody. It's part two of our podcast, all dedicated to Motown, and we're very excited to uh, continue the um, the conversation about this important sound, the development of a record label, and of course all those great songs that came out of Motown. It's the uh, 60th anniversary of Motown, and it's appropriate that we spend a little time digging into the archives of the uh, NAM oral history interviews to uh, bring to you some perspective on what that whole thing was about. We talked earlier in the first podcast about its history and its songs, and we're going to take a different direction and uh, hear from a couple of different voices. Yeah, so today we are going to be going over actually playing music at Motown, getting to hear from one of the Funk Brothers, and a little bit of the producing and engineering that went into actually creating the Motown sound and the impacts that that had on the industry. Now, one of these days, we're going to hopefully spend some time in this podcast talking about studio musicians because we've been so blessed to interview a great number of them, really important um men and women who have contributed to music but whose names you don't know. Uh, thanks to some documentaries and some great articles and books in recent years, recent 20 years, uh, we know about the Funk Brothers now, uh, but for many years they were largely unnoticed, uh, like so many other studio musicians, the the Wrecking Crew, uh, the A-Team in Nashville, uh, you know, so many others. So it's really a neat opportunity for us to uh, pause and take notice of these uh, incredible musicians who were behind that sound. We talked so much last time about the songs, but it's the execution of those songs that really is why we're humming them. And the guys on uh, bass, drums, uh, all those instruments, uh, I think, had a lot to do with it. So uh, what a blessing it was to interview Jack Ashford, who we'll be hearing from uh, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Jack's going to be talking about getting hired onto Motown and the history of the Funk Brothers. So to cut a long story short, when I finally got to rehearsal in uh, Detroit, I was, uh, uh, they sent me a telegram about a month later to come to Detroit. And when I got there, it was a session going on. So I'm, it was on a weekend. And I'm banging on the door. I can hear music coming from the back of this building. You've seen pictures of Motown building, right? 
Well, there's a house. You don't expect to hear that music come up in the interior, you know. And so uh, I'm banging and kicking on them. Now I'm getting tired, but I got driving. I had to stay here for a minute because I know someone's in there. So this little short guy comes to the door and says, uh, oh, oh, okay. He says, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, you can help me. I am got a meeting up here with some guy by the name Marvin Gaye. <laughs> that tickled him because that was Barry Gordy. <laughs> and that's his brother-in-law. I said, some guy, he knew I didn't know anything. Okay, so I guess, yeah, okay. Come on, man. So I went on the back, and I heard all this music and went through there and into the, the, the steps. There's a control room and a bathroom. Let me tell you a minute about this bathroom. Here's a control room. Here's a bathroom. If you're in there cutting a the date, they had to put a sign on the bathroom door, do not use. Because when you flush the toilet, the sound came out in the studio on the tape. That's how, you know, that's how crude the situation was. But we had billions of dollars worth of hits come out of that room. You know, it's funny now. So when he opened the door, there was a garage. Go down the four steps, and you're in the garage. And it was full of people. And I'm standing there with Barry, and this little boy was walking around bumping into everything. Boom, 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 because it was so, so crowded. So I said, why did you let that little boy bump in everything? Obviously, he can't see. He said, oh, he's only going to hit it once. That's Stevie Wonder. He, he won't go back over there. <laughs> but that didn't mean anything when he said Stevie. I just know it's a blind kid being abused. That's what I'm looking at. It. <laughs> you know? So I looked in back. I saw Marvin Gaye sitting there. You know? So he waved and I said, okay. He had picked guys from all over the country, Washington, everywhere, to get this band and they could play. And so I eased my way back doing the Funk Brothers was in there playing, you know, which didn't mean anything to me except the keyboard player, Earl Van Dyke. I recognized him from Atlantic City. See, when I got there, it was 12 of us collectively, but Joe Hunter had just left when I got there in 1963. Earl got there in 1962. Joe Hunter went independent, but he was the very first quote, funk brother, first soul brother, that's what they would call it, first that's what Earl called us. But see, Barry Gordy wouldn't have had anybody call anything about funk up in that company. That was the end of that. He was just that kind of stiff collar, you know. We got that name from the drummer, Benny Benjamin. One day he was leaving the studio, I don't know what, we had just got finished with a song that was really funky or something. And when he was going out the door, he said, boy, he said, you know what? You guys are really funky. I'm going to name you all the Funk Brothers. That's how it happened. Hmm. We didn't use it after that. That wasn't used again. The story was told to the producer of the film, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. And so he just took that and parlayed it and said, I'm going to call you all the Funk Brothers. Don't nobody knows it's the Funk Brothers. But anyhow, he called it. I wouldn't have done it, but he did it. I don't think it sold any more records. I got this star. You could have called us anybody, the Motown Rhythm Section. That's what I called it. Uh, but then again, you know, I was just a player. But anyhow, you had James Jameson on bass. Now, I know, let me tell you something. I'm glad you asked me that question. When we started out in 1963, when I got there, it was very few guys around other than the Funk Brothers. Very few people because it wasn't, it was an emerging company. It wasn't anything exciting. Uh, and we were only getting $10 a song. Where'd our love go? I got $10 for it. 
uh, dancing in the street, I got $10 for it. But when you add those tens up and you're cutting six songs a day, I was making 60 bucks a day at Motown. That wasn't bad bread for five days a week. I'm living pretty good. Uh, and it beats traveling on the road, gigging. You know, you could always tell us organ groups that was out there too, because they'd buy hearses, a hearse that you put bodies in and slide the organ in the side door, close it up and put the drums and everything in there. And there's the band up the road in a hearse. You found more hearses in the street than you did uh, in the Roman Empire when they were killing people. <laughs> so the thing is, what we did, we, uh, uh, we worked very hard to, to, to develop our sound. So when I got there, Earl Van Dyke was the number one keyboard player, acoustical. Johnny Griffith, other keyboarders, he would play the things like the organ, clavinet, celeste, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the drummers. You had Benny Benjamin, Pistol Allen. Uh, you know what a shuffle is. No one could shuffle like Pistol because he came from a big band and he was used to shuffling a big band. That's, that's shuffling pretty good when you can push a big band like that. You know, you can do that. And then when Benny died in 68, Euro Jones came into the picture. But intermittently, Euro Jones would come in when Benny would get lost on one of his odysseys. Earl Van Dyke said, well, bring Euro in because Earl used Euro in our club gigs at night as the drummer with, you know, with the band that was doing the gigs. So he was a the, the normal guy to bring in because he was used to playing with the rhythm section. And so uh, in 1968, he became a regular. He was the last Funk Brother brought in. But Ure was a drummer with me and with Marvin Gaye's band also. You know, he was a part of the aggregation, you know. And so I was very much familiar with him. You know, I was comfortable with him playing, you know, because he was solid. And so, uh, uh, it was just, and then you had Eddie Bongo Brown, who was originally Marvin Gaye's valet. And, uh, but when he would get finished doing it, he'd pull the bongos up and kungas up on the stage and play. And he fit in very well with the guys. Then he worked with us at night also. Then you had Eddie Willis, who was from uh, Grenada, Mississippi. He played guitar, backbeat, and then a little soulful licks. And then the only white guy in the band was uh, Joe Messina who used to play with Soupy Sales, and when Soupy would have the, the guests like Dizzy Gillespie and all those guys come to, Joe would be playing with them cats, John Coltrane. Whenever they appeared on that show, Joe was there. In fact, Joe wrote a book called um, Giant Steps. Uh, uh, it was the song Giant Steps by John Coltrane, and he showed the methods and everything, and a very nice book, I have it. And so uh, um, it was just 12 of us, but 11 working because Joe Hunter had left. I just love listening to Jack Ashford. I mean, you know, he's so articulate. He's got such a way of expressing himself. I'm very jealous of the control of his vocabulary. I always wish I could talk like that. Uh, and what a sweet guy to take time to, uh, to chat with us and, and conduct an interview uh, for the NAM Oral History Program. And it was, you know, of course, growing up listening to Motown and hearing, you know, getting to meet a funk brother, that's, there's nothing too shabby about that. <laughs> so moving forward, uh, the next new voice we're going to hear is Phil Rainland. 
Yeah, one of the great horn players of the Motown sound and playing trombone on a lot of big hits, uh, including Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Oh, how Hmm. about that? All right, so here's Phil. He's going to be talking about getting hired at Motown and his time recording there as well as some touring. I was on tour with Stevie Wonder, okay? So a 10-day tour. Back in those days, uh, a lot of tours with Motown happened to have been 10 days. I don't know why, but they they regional tours, and they, and they ended up being a 10-day tour. I, I can remember. Most of the tours I went on were 10-day tours. <laughs> so anyway, we're on this 10-day tour with, 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 with Stevie Wonder. The only tour I ever did with Stevie Wonder, really. And so... I noticed that he was kind of, I have a pretty unique sound, I have to say that. So I noticed that he was kind of, you know, I was sitting to his left and he kind of put his head over a little bit. So two days before the tour was ending, we're getting on the bus. I'm getting on the bus. He's already sitting in his seat, which I'll reflect on that later. He's sitting at the first seat on the bus. Now, if he, maybe he heard me talk. I don't know how he knew it was me, but he said, hey, trombone man, because he didn't know my name. He said, trombone man, he said, why don't you uh, give your number to my manager before before he leave the tour here? He didn't say why, but he didn't have to say why. I didn't have to ask him why. Of course, I'm going to give you <laughs> Boom, right now, today, you know. So I gave her my number. It happened to have been his lady, you know. I gave her my number, and the tour, you know, like, well, ended on that weekend. About middle of the following week, I get a call from the office for my first record session with Motown. Meanwhile, before that, you know, like all the guys that were on during the sessions, you know, like they were all putting in a good word for me, you know, but that didn't really hold water. I mean, that didn't mean nothing until Stevie Wonder said, you know. So with his recommendation, I don't even know if he remembers all that. I do, though. (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, you know, one of the things I was really hoping to to find in looking for your discography and some of the things that you've done is some of the sides, some of the recordings that you did for Motown. Do you remember any specific yeah. ones? <laughs> Man, it was like a factory. I, I, I don't, I don't, rem- I can only uh, tell you the one, only one that I get paid on. I did had to have been between. 50 and 75. I mean, I did a lot of, some of them were like double and triple sessions. Mm. But what we would do, they were all overdubs. What they would do is they'd book a session, especially if they booked a a double or a triple, like I say, sometimes a triple session. Mm. If they booked a double or a triple session, you might end up playing um, you know, like uh, some of Gladys Knight's, some of Stevie, some of The Temptation. It might be four or five different artists on the label. You know, so it's almost like a factory in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, the horn sessions, the parts are all written out. 
correct everything, no problem, just read them down. And then they would <laughs> bring the horns all the way down so he could barely hear them. But the only, the only track that I'm, that I receive uh, residuals on is Papa Was a Rolling Stone. All of the other uh, recordings that I did, for some strange reasons, the uh, contracts got lost. I mean, that was their excuse. Because a lot of my friends said, Phil, man, all them sessions, Marcus Gravelgrave first told me, he said, man, all them sessions you did, man, you should be getting more money than that. Why don't you go and talk to some? So I went down to the office and, and he said, well, no, the contracts got lost. <laughs> Wonder why. <laughs> so they wouldn't have to pay the musicians. But uh, somehow Papa get, was a Rolling Stone got through the cracks and I get, I, every now and then, about four or five times a year, I get a check from, you know, a TV show where they play Papa or whatever. <laughs> so that was Phil Brainland. Next up, you're going to hear a little bit about Allie Willis. Now, it wasn't necessarily that she played during some of these songs, but it was more about her perspective hearing all the playing happening in that sound from the outside, just sitting on the ground outside of the house, being inspired by all of these amazing musicians. I was a fanatic uh, radio kid, and I grew up in Detroit, so there was no better radio in the world. Uh, I listened to mostly black stations. I, uh, you know, Motown was formed as I was coming up. So I would either get dropped off by my parents or when I got my driver's license, uh, I lived at Motown. Outside, never went in. I would sit on the lawn and um, you could watch the people come in and out. But most importantly, as these songs were being cut, you could hear the music coming through the walls because it's just this tiny little house. Is it what we refer to as Hitsville? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, and there were actually, I mean, now the Motown Museum is two of the houses. And um, finally, 60 years later, they have bought the block and the block behind, and they're building a huge complex now okay. that'll have a theater, library, schools, recording studios, and I'm very much involved in that. But um, I just grew up idolizing Motown, and I would learn, uh, you know, I would hear a bass line being played over and over again, or um, I, I learned music by like hearing these separate parts. So I never learned how to play. Lessons, I'm not good at, you know, if you give me an instruction that's more than two lines long, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yet I could figure out like how to build an airplane. How, you know, I, I'm good with complex things. Simple things like terrify me. Anyway, I know that's a long way around this question, but Motown was my prime influencer. The black radio stations in Detroit, especially a DJ named Martha Jean the Queen, uh, just lived for it. And I never got into Motown um, other than once when September first came out. So this would have been like beginning in 1979. And the Detroit Free Press did a, you know, like Hometown Girl Makes Good. 
and they said, do you want to film at Motown? And I was like, are you kidding? I could finally get in? <laughs> so I went in once, was totally blown away, because as I'm sure you know, nothing was touched from the day that they left. And then that was it until I did this huge Detroit project they worked on for five years. And I met uh, Paul Reiser, who was one of the, you know, Funk Brothers. And he said, do you want to record at Motown? It was like 50 years I have been salivating. <laughs> and uh, so it was Paul Reiser and his son, Paul Reiser Jr. All of James Jamerson's family easily, um, you know, I have two other favorite bass players, but Jamerson is right there. And, uh, and the two engineers that built the studio. Um, so we, we brought our own gear in, but to record in the snake pit, it was a dream come true. Uh, and then now, uh, not even a couple years ago, someone said, do you know Robin Terry? So she's Barry Gordy's niece. She's the CEO of the Motown Museum. And we met and it was like, bang. So I literally live there now. But it took decades upon decades to finally get there. But I feel like being involved with them now, helping to raise money for this complex, it's full circle. Because there is no question I would not have become a songwriter um, if Motown, if I hadn't lived in Detroit and if Motown hadn't, you know, been there. And then I did finally get to meet uh, Barry Gordy a few times. And that was like, to me, better than bringing all the Beatles back, you know. <laughs> uh, and that was great. And every single time I tell him the story of sitting on the lawn and every single time he goes, you wrote what? You wrote what? And then it always ends with me saying, thank you, and him saying to me, no, thank you. So I'm ready to die. That's good enough for me. So that was Ellie Willis. Um, next up, you are going to hear a little bit about the producing and engineering of the Motown sound. And both of these people, Bob Olson and Tony Bongiovi, have two completely different perspectives. Um, I really enjoy just listening to their different sides of creating of the Motown sound. I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah, it okay. does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's where the um, the next level of the sound, if you peel back the layers, you know, we've got the songs, but how were they executed? How were they played? And then how were they produced? You know, what did these engineers do with those recordings? And how did that sound become something different than all their competitors and why are we talking about them and not uh, J Records or you know a hundred other labels that uh, were around at that time and the engineers had a lot to do with that and what I think is particularly cool jumping ahead just a little bit is Tony Bon Jovi really analyzed this almost scientifically as a as a listener and becoming an engineer as a young kid he was basically using math to figure out what this sound and why this sound was unique and different. I mean, that's how deep some people go to try to figure out, you know, wait, it's got to be something. It's not just magic, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is, there's more to it than uh, hocus pocus. And he thinks he came up with something and it's certainly very compelling. 
Um, and Bob Olson was there. You know, Bob was there helping mix some of these things and record some of these recordings that we now know as classics. So these perspectives, I think, are very important. What a difficult process that must have been, though, because we, we, we've been talking about mostly in the last episode, in part one, about how they created such a sound in Motown because of how well everyone got together. They were all living together. Um, the songwriters were with the performers and all that. And then you get to the producing and the engineering side of it, and you have to capture that feeling. Um, we talked a little bit about this when we did our Sun Records podcast about how that there was something about that room and recording that feeling hmm. was difficult. And I can't imagine it's any different with Motown, just have getting that feeling on the tape. Yep. It's a shame it couldn't be just a fly on the wall Mm -hmm. in that room as they're going through and producing these records. Yeah. Well, and also it seems to me that there was a vision, even though it may be unspoken, of how we're going to produce, you know, how is it going to be mixed and mastered? I mean, that part of it, we didn't really think too much about. Now, uh, luckily, we think a little bit more about that, but... Back then, I think that it was, oh, okay, you just record it, right? (laughs) No, these guys, Bob Olson and others, were really thinking, how can we put this to the next level? Awesome. So let's hear from Bob Olson first. He's going to talk about how he got into the business, his training, uh, what types of boards that they had, uh, the uniqueness of the sound, a little bit about Stevie Wonder, and then he's going to go into uh, more about the recording equipment and the uniqueness of the sound as well as producing Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. But anyway, I was looking for a summer job. This guy sent me to Motown as a joke. And I was welcomed with open arms and wound up going to parties at the chief engineer's house for, I guess, close to a year. And then ultimately got a job as a mastering trainee. And from there became a mastery engineer for a few years. And then their top production team left, took several engineers with them, and they were desperate. They knew I had a little bit of a musical background, unlike the other nerds. And so I got basically forced into the studio (laughs) and given a crash course in recording by Joe Atkinson, who had come to Motown from 20 years at Atlantic in New York. And Cal Harris, who had come to Motown from Gold Star in Hollywood, and before that he had actually interned at United Western and was responsible for the Beach Boys stuff, the stuff that he didn't have time to do because Brian wanted to do all this extra overdubbing and stuff. Cal did. Hmm. And I didn't even know about that until this this, uh, box set came out about 10 years ago, and Cal was credited with the basic track on Good Vibrations, and I just about keeled over. I called him up and found out the whole story. <laughs> I'd have been scared to death if I'd have known <laughs> he'd done that. <laughs> so anyway, I basically got trained in the Detroit methods, in the New York methods, and in the Chicago, and because of course, Putnam came from Chicago, so I got the the Chicago and West Coast methods. Although most of the West Coast methods 
came from people who had worked for RCA. Very interesting. So what was Motown like when you first got there? Uh, well, fast and furious. I mean, I worked, I worked on, in my first month, I worked on something like five top ten singles. I mean, talk about starting at the top, completely not knowing anything. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Most of us had no idea how good that studio was until we went elsewhere. <laughs> so what board did they have? Incredible studio. Uh, well, the original studio, it originally had a, an Altic mixer, four-channel mixer, an Ampex four-channel mixer, and five channels of Langevin preamps and faders and so forth that was all used to mix down from three-track recorder. Hmm. And then they, uh, I mean, you couldn't really buy a turnkey recording console until the 70s. I mean, everybody had to build their own, pretty much. I mean, you, some people modified broadcast consoles. Altic made a console for broadcast live sound and live sound that a lot of people turned into a recording console. New York, several New York studios used modified Gates consoles. Mm -hmm. And the major labels, prior to three-track, major label studios typically had a four input console. Wow. <laughs> I mean, most of those recordings that you've heard from the 30s and 40s were recorded with four mics. So what did you think were some of the elements of the uniqueness of the sound that was produced there? Uh, well, the, the studio was v extremely natural sounding, so it really captured the character of the musicians. Hmm. And from there, it was about the musicians. Uh, we only used headphones sparingly. We had to. They, they only put in headphones because they had built three isolation rooms and they put in a binaural microphone in each one. The idea was that the musicians would be able to put on headphones and hear each other with that. Well, that didn't work out. We wound up leaving the door open to the one that was closest to the studio, and typically only the organist was on headphones in the back, and we figured out the binaural didn't work, so we had to send them a mix from the console. Hmm. But anyway, most of the guys, the drummers were wearing headphones, but most of the guys were not. The guitars and the bass were all plugged into a mixer, and each input of the mixer came up in the control room so we, we could do our own pickup of it. And then they were mixed together to an Altic Lansing studio monitor that was below them. So the bass player and the guitar players were all hearing themselves out of a studio monitor, but all mixed together. And that's what everybody in the room was hearing them with. And years later, I finally figured out that's 
probably one of the major secrets to our bass and guitar sound is that we did we inadvertently did not have a corrupted ear to finger path because if if you mic a if you take a direct and the guitar player is listening to an amp or the bass player is listening to an amp it doesn't work mm -hmm. it's like the effect of what they are hearing on their touch and <laughs> is crucial. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so was it one room? There was there isolation booths or anything like that? Well, it was one room, and then there were three isolation rooms. And typically, the the one that faced into the studio, we left the door open. We didn't use the middle one. The back one had the organ in it, and he was the only one that was really isolated. Hmm. And how how was the um, microphones set up? Were, were there um, standard procedures for that, as far as like where the, they would place them for drums, or was that dependent? Well, on the I would say it was standard, but it was the same standard everybody else was using. Mm. I mean, it was basically one drum, one mic over. Or in the old days, it was one mic over the drums, and a bass drum fill mic was pretty much how everybody I mean Barry had recorded in Chicago he had he had recorded in New York at Bell Sound and Atlantic and you know it was, it was you know whatever the mainstream way to do it was how we did it so the uniqueness is primarily the drummers it was the fact that they were jazz musicians so they were not playing anywhere near as loud as became common in the 70s. And that meant when they hit an accent, it could blow you out of the room. It was dynamic and, I mean, it was wonderful. And, and they had to play soft so they could hear each other without headphones. <laughs> so there was really an acoustic balance in the room, although the drummers, after the headphones went in, they, were, they seemed to be using headphones. Sometimes a piano player would use headphones. I guess the, the high moment of the career was Stevie Wonder, basically Barry had Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder both wanted to produce. So Barry said, okay, first you produce somebody else. And so he gave Marvin Gaye a group called The Originals and he gave Stevie Wonder The Spinners. And Stevie wrote and produced this song called It's a Shame on the Spinners. And probably the most amazing experience I ever had recording was sitting in the control room. The singer was a guy named G.C. Cameron. And Stevie said, OK, well, do, do this down from the top, but don't sing the tag until we know we've got the rest of it so your voice doesn't get blown up. <laughs> GC sang the record on the first take. <laughs> and we all sat there looking at each other with our jaw on the floor. And yes, you can see. <laughs> I mean, we were sitting there with our minds blown. Because in three minutes, we had learned, number one, it was a hit record. Number two, Stevie Wonder had a career as a producer. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just all came crashing home. Hey, this works. Mm. 
And so we quick punched in the tail of the lead vocal and stacked four passes of all of them singing backgrounds and and they put out the record and shot up the charts. I, I've been told they actually tried to stop it because they've forgotten that their contract was up. <laughs> they weren't able to stop the record. It went top 10 and they wound up signing with Atlantic. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> to go to all that trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, but but anyhow, that was Stevie had proven himself and away it went. And Marvin did the originals, did a uh tune called The Bells that did pretty well on them. And one of the songs that was pitched to him for that album was What's Going On. Hmm. And so the basic track was actually cut under their name. And then he snuck in and did vocals on it and messed with it. And ironically, they did not want to release it because they couldn't imagine Barry Gordy, who was managing him, could not imagine a Marvin Gaye fan being into any kind of a political statement thing. To him, it was, you know, this guy's about love songs. This is not. So from his viewpoint, Marvin would be starting his career all over again out of nowhere, and he wasn't sure he wanted to take that, that chance. Mm -hmm. But then as it came down, it turned out that Marvin's contract was about up, and they were, well, it's not that it was up, they were required to release a certain number of records every year under his contract. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have anything else to release. And so the head of A&R said, well, you know, it's pretty good. Barry was totally paranoid of it because it was kind of jazzy. And he'd already lost his shirt on a jazz record. <laughs> but anyway, ultimate, ultimately, they did release it. A week later, it's in the top 10. We get the call, where's the album? <laughs> in interviews, Marvin has said, God produced that album, and he wasn't kidding. <laughs> that the rest of that album was, was written, <laughs> recorded, and released in about 10 days. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> no time for thinking. <laughs> Which it turns out is a real important part of music. I mean, thinking gets you in trouble. If you can just do it, human beings do amazing things when they just harmonize in music. And we have way too much thinking today. <laughs> but any, anyhow, and I worked on that. I did the strings and uh, oh, cool. was there for the a lot of bunch of the vocals I was there for the sax solo on what's going on or the guy came in doodled around a little bit and Marvin sent him home and that went on the record <laughs> 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 it's a guy named Eli Fontaine amazing 
sax, alto sax player. Awesome. That was great listening to Bob Olson there. Uh, what a nice guy. We caught up with him at the Nashville NAM show, and uh, he's a regular there. And I hope you, uh, if uh, you have a chance to uh, visit the show, you get a chance to hang out with him because he's really a legend and a very nice, approachable guy. Another guy that I was just really very happy that we were able to interview, we're going to hear up next, and that's Tony Bon Jovi. Got to interview him in his recording studio in Florida. And um, his career was a little different than most of the other people we're talking about. He didn't actually work for Motown, but he was greatly influenced by them. And his uh, recording career wasn't so much about um, soul music and rhythm and blues as it was about rock and roll. He did two albums, um, engineered two albums for the Ramones um, and early punk rock music. And so it's kind of funny to think, okay, here's an engineer who was influenced by this sound that we're talking about today and took it in a completely different level as far as music goes. But engineers wise, you know, he learned an awful lot. He studied it as we're about to hear. Um, just a couple of other credits. He was also the guy who did the album 77 for Talking Heads, which is very uh, pivotal uh, recording for that uh, group. And Aerosmith, a couple of live albums, as well as uh, Rock in a Hard Place. And I think that was about 1982. And then Leaving Home was one of the albums he did for the Ramones. Um, then he, uh, in the late 60s, had a chance to record Jimi Hendrix. And when uh, Jimi died suddenly, uh, nothing was done of those recordings until several years later after some legal things had to be taken care of. So in 1977, uh, Tony Bon Jovi's um, mastering and recording of um, uh, Midnight Lighting came out and, of course, gave the world recordings of Jimi Hendrix uh, five years after his passing that they had never heard before. So very powerful career. And as you will hear, a very powerful guy. Yeah. So Tony's going to be talking about the science behind the Motown sound. Now, I'm a kid in high school and here's all these engineers from Columbia and RCA. Not, oh, Columbia and RCA didn't get along at all. Columbia and, and uh, Ampex and so on. And I said, uh, so Bob Lifton said, so what is it that you wanted to tell us? I said, I think I figured out what they're doing, what part of the sound, what, what, they, what they have out there in Detroit. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, I think they have a reverberation chamber with a very short decay time. He, and so the Columbia engineer, and I'll never forget this, he said, that's impossible. I said, yeah, but I, I measured it and, and I think that's what they're doing. Now, I'm a senior in high school. How, how could you possibly know this? So he said, well, I wrote a paper on the effects of both temperature and humidity on reverberation time and frequency response, because there's a correlation between those. And I published it. And, and I said, no one would ever build an echo chamber like that. Most rooms had between three and five seconds. The one at Motown, as I later found out, was built wrong, and, and it had only two seconds. But that put this crystal-like sound around those records. And they wouldn't listen to my tape. So what I had done is I had a good friend of mine in New York that I'd met uh, around that time and Jim Zach and I said gee they won't listen to my uh, recordings that I'd done and I, I, I just wanted to show them that I think I could do that he said uh, why don't you call Motown in Detroit I said okay so I went and I got the address 2648 West Grand Boulevard 
And I called him and I said, before I called him, I said, what, what should I do? He said, ask for the chief engineer. I said, what have you got to lose? I said, okay. So I wrote everything down, what I was going to say, because I'm a little Italian kid from New Jersey. And I knew when my father got that phone bill, I was going to get a beating for that. Because why are you calling Detroit? And um, they wanted me to go to medical. Everybody in my family is a doctor but me. And I didn't want to do that. So I wrote this little speech down. And um, I called Motown. And they answered the phone, Motown Records. I said, I want to speak to the chief engineer. Then a voice gets on the other end, Mike McLean here. And I told him the whole story. I'd read it. There was this long pause. And he said, um, are you sure that's, what we're, that's what's going on out here? And I said, I'm pretty sure. I'm just calling to find out if, in fact, that's what you're doing. He said, well, I'll tell you what. We're recording one of our artists in New York City because they, besides Detroit, they would record in New York with the Supremes and Gladys Knight and the Temptations, depending on what they were doing and who they were doing it with. These were all big stars back then. And they would use all the main studios. But the records were mixed in Detroit because that's where they had the sound. And... Um, so I met a fellow there. I went to the Lincoln Center Motor Inn to Lawrence Horn, and uh, I played him my tape. And he said, how did you do this? And I t told him the whole story. And he said, oh, he said, how would you like to come to Motown in Detroit? So you, you might as well ask a 10-year-old kid if he wants to go to Disneyland. And I said, yeah. Now, I knew who the musicians were from reading the backs of the album covers. All, I knew who they were. And uh, I told him, I said, yeah, you have to talk to my parents because I have to get permission to go there. I have to skip some more school to do this. Meanwhile, I'd taken off from so many days to try to find what I wanted that the guidance counselor sat me down and says, you don't have to worry about going to Rutgers. You're not even going to graduate. You should get, what are you doing? And of course, back then there was no drugs or anything like that. I said, well, I'm trying to find out how you do this and where you go. And uh, there's no school. What do I study? How? What? And uh, uh, so they flew me to Detroit. And it was my first time in a hotel. Stayed at the St. Regis Hotel on West Grand Boulevard. And uh, I had my own room with a TV in front of it, in the front of the bed. And I had my own bathroom I didn't have to share with my sister. And they said, when they brought me in there, they said, if you get hungry, order from room service because you can't go outside of the hotel. You're not, you don't do that. Don't leave the room. I said, okay. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was a minor. I didn't think about that. All I know is, so I called my mother and i'm looking at a menu which i've never seen before because when you're when you grow up in an, an italian family you you eat what what your mother puts in front of you and you, it's it's you know it's macaroni or chicken or something like that but I had all these weird uh, strange names associated with these dishes like chateaubriand fettuccine alfredo chicken kiev and and veal oscar and i didn't know what that was so i called my mother and i said jesus i'm hungry but what do i eat what is this stuff she said, get the uh, chicken Kiev and take the stuff out of the middle, which is cheese, and eat that. And I did, and that was fun. And I had a TV in front of me, and it was in my own room. I'd never been outside of New Jersey except to go down the Jersey Shore and stay with my grandmother down there. So the next day, uh, I had breakfast. They picked me up, and they drove me over to the studios on West Grand Boulevard. And they put me in the control room, and there were the musicians. There was Benny Benjamin on drums in that corner, Earl Van Dyke, Robert White, Joe Messina, Eddie Willis, the three guitars, James Jameson. Uh, they had Eddie Bongos on that session. And, uh, um, oh, I can't think of his name. Um, it'll come to me here. Ivy Joe Hunter. Ivy Joe Hunter was the producer, and he wrote a song called Loving You that the Four Tops recorded. He also wrote 
was one of the writers on Dancing in the Street. So while they were playing, they were getting ready to go out on a break. So my, I had a handler there. You know, I wasn't allowed to walk around by myself, obviously. And uh, when I went in the control room, I just looked around at all this equipment. They had two A-track machines and a bunch of equalizers and all kinds of stuff that I'd never seen in New York. And, but that was Motown. So they take me out into the room. And I'm standing there, and, and so the girl, the handler, she starts introducing me, say, this is Tony. Uh, he's going to be with us at Motown here for a while, and that's been, I said, I know who you are, and I said, hi, man, it's great to meet you guys. And they were all getting up to go in the parking lot to take a break, and Ivy Joe Hunter said, and this is Ivy Joe Hunter, I said, I know, you wrote Loving You. I know that song, the Four Tops recorded. He said, you know that song? I said, yeah. He said, you know any other, Ivy Joe? I said, you were one of the writers on Dance on the Street. He said, how do you know that? Because I read the label. The only information I could get is what I could read from the record stores or from the records that I had. And he said, uh, he said, uh, well, come on outside with me. And he puts his arm around me. Ivy Joe wants to talk to you to teach you something about songs and stuff. So as he's walking me out into the, to the backyard where the parking lot was, my handler sees this and she comes down and pulls me away from him. And she says, Ivy Joe, honey, you stay away from that boy. You understand me? And she says to me, now the musicians were getting up and all walking outside. You can imagine what this was like. She said, Tony, you cannot go back there with those musicians. They're a bad influence. I don't want you going back there. You stay here. You go in that control room. You do not leave this room. Do not go back. Because I didn't know it at the time, but the drummer had a heroin problem and they were drinking out there. And I'm a minor. So if, not that anything would go wrong, but if, but if something went wrong and the police showed up, I'm 17 years old, and why am I out here with all these people? So Motown was very protective of me, and they really, uh, throughout my tenure in working there, they, they, uh, they did a lot for me. That was probably, and, and that experience uh, in Detroit, and I, uh, over the years, I went there until 1971, I commute back and forth, and as a result of that, uh, I had a little Motown identif temporary identification card, which I still have, and um, I had ultimately one you, you clip on with your picture on it, but I saved the original uh, temporary card, and it's been with me since 1968. So in 1967, I went to Detroit. 1968, they decided that they, they it expired in 68. In 67, they wanted me to move there. I said, I don't want to do that. I don't know anybody here. And um, so that, when, when word of that got back to New York City, all the studios that wouldn't let me in, that wouldn't let me see the studios, well, every one of them offered me a job. Every one of them. I, had, I didn't have to struggle for eight minutes. So once again, I talked to Jim and I said, I, and Rutgers, Uni Rutgers University had found out what I had done. Now, they said, if you go to summer school and take your SATs, we'll let you, we're gonna use that as a credit and you can go and go to the Bush campus and you'll be able to, we'll allow you to start your electrical engineering studies at Rutgers because up until then, I wasn't even gonna graduate. But I had done what I had accomplished out there and I didn't realize that at the time was so significant. I had an impact and I didn't know that what I had done, you know, you know, no one starts out to think that that's what they're gonna do. And then it happens, it's all through a series of accidents that happened. So I took a job at Pierce Southern Music and they had a demo studio. And back then in 1966, the summer of they, uh, there were no cassettes, you cut what we called dubs, where the 10 inch records and the 45 was in the middle. So my job at, at Fear Southern was to, the, the, as a publisher, they had a ca song catalog. And I had to work a Fairchild lathe and an Ampex 300 machine and I cut dubs for them. And while I was doing that, I was going around the city into the studios and every one of them wanted me to, to work for them. 
and I ended up at a Apostolic on 53 East 10th Street because I was I was the only guy there. But they all associated A and R, Bell Sound, the very studio that I got thrown out so many times. They now they wanted to hire me because I knew how to do that Motown thing, and that was the one thing that was missing in New York was what I knew, and they wanted, and I was 17, 17 years old. So that's that's how my career started. And then, of course, the rest is what I've been doing for the last 50 years. I met uh, Barry, uh, uh, and he, I met, with, met him, and uh, I worked with Smokey, and, and I worked with uh, Norman Whitfield, and uh, a, a lot of the big producers that were there at that time, I worked with them. What they had me doing mostly, though, was mixing. I did a lot of that. And it was, uh, at Motown, you really saw they, they had an A-track, and of course today it's second nature, but back then they would put horns and strings on everything. And they would make me go in, and, to, in the beginning to get the 45s. They say, we want you to take the masters. And Motown filed uh, their recordings by song, not by artist, because you could have three or four different artists on the same song. Whoever sounded the best got the record. And so they had me um, listen to the 45s and I got the uh, master tapes and I had to match what they did, and I realized very quickly, said, wait a minute, there's, where did this intro come from? It's not the way it was played, it came from the end of the record. They edited that, put it in the front, and then there were horns and strings playing all the time, and they didn't put those in until halfway through the record. So Motown was the first record company that used the studio as an integral part of the production. They had talkbacks that would go into the headphones, which is commonplace today. In New York City, everything was four track. And when you hit the talkback, it went over speakers and everything. And everything was on, the rhythm section was on two tracks in New York. Maybe you had the third track for horns and strings and voices for the fourth one, but they had a track. So they had all this luxury of, of all these tracks to do these things with. And, uh, and they had, um, uh, so I learned a lot from being there and being in that environment. And I, I soaked it all up and I would go back to my hotel room and write everything down because you weren't allowed to take any pictures at Motown, obviously. And, and, um, but Motown skyrocketed my career. In fact, Power Station is what I would call the, uh, uh, the, what Motown would have been had it come to New York City. The side rooms that made Power Station what it is. Everybody thought that that was such a, a brilliant gesture on my part to come up with that. How did you think of this? So, well, they got that because that's what they had in Motown. They had, they had little side rooms. They put musicians in. New York didn't have anything like that. So when I built Power Station, I just elaborated on that. And I, and I made it uh, even more so that you could have more control over the sound. And then, of course, Power Station quickly became the number one studio in New York City and by reputation in the United States and then globally in the world. The only studio ever have a band named after it, the Power Station band. So that was Tony Bongiovi talking about the Motown sound. Isn't that interesting? I, a really clever guy. I love that he was so young. Yeah. Nobody would listen to him. And he was like, I'm telling you, this is it. I broke this <laughs> I down. Figured out. I figured, figured out the it code. Out. Yep. Yep. And he took it right to Motown. He's like, mm. what do I have to lose? Let me just call up this guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Great stuff. So we're going to move into our last section of this two-part series all about Motown, and we're going to talk about the impacts of Motown, kind of what happened after and what all of this did for music. And we're going to hear from a couple familiar faces again, uh, Jack Ashford and Allie Willis. So starting off with Jack Ashford, um, he's going to be talking about the impact on the industry and uh, the Motown sound. I had no idea because they kept us oblivious to the success that was being garnered by our work. You know, I don't know whether that was contrived or what, 
But the thing is, we didn't know. We were concentrating on getting hits. And then we began to know, you know, that we were making an impact on the industry because we could see like four records of ours in the top ten, and they had to pull one out to get another one on. Take Stevie off, put Marvin on. Take Marvin off, put the Temptations on, you know, all that kind of. I said, this isn't normal for record companies, you know, because now I'm learning how they work. Because uh, uh, with me being there, no one playing jazz, I wanted to know where the success was coming from with this strange music, uh, R&B, that I didn't play and didn't know anything about. Earl said, well, don't learn it. Just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> you don't want to know too much about it. And uh, it began to work until the tambourine began to become a dominant force in the Motown sound. And they let me know that they appreciate, like, a uh, uh, signed, sealed, and delivered. You know, In fact, my wife was the first session I took her to was one night when Stevie and I did sign, seal, and delivered. Huh. And I put tambourine on, he put clavinet on, and of course that did, phew, took right off too. So, and then war, I did so many things with tambourine, you know, that um, it began to take on a life of its own, basically, you know. It, uh, it was just like they expected certain, certain things. Cool, that was Jack Ashford. Uh, love listening to that guy. Um, and the impact of, of Motown. I mean, now we're talking about the uh, 60th anniversary of that incredible label. Uh, there's a museum that's opened up in Detroit. There's a Broadway musical that's got uh, the best songs in the entire planet in one musical. Uh, documentaries coming out, you know. So many shows, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, there was one on television. I mean, it's just an amazing topic and something that so many of us can relate to and so much of us feel a part of. And I think that um, that has a lot to do with Mr. Gordy and his vision. So um, a very special uh, happy anniversary to him and to all of those who have put on that uh, that sound, created what we have loved for so many years and will continue to and share with next generations, which I think is really very important. And um, Allie Willis, who we're going to hear from now, had a lot to do with that. Uh, she's a little bit proud and didn't talk too much about her own personal role in bringing the Motown Museum uh, open to the public, but uh, she did, as well as many other people. Mr. Gordy and his family um, have all worked very hard to make sure that that legacy continues. So let's hear from Allie. Well, you know, there are some people who just don't understand what the impact of Motown and that sound was. Can I you don't understand. How that sort of when it first came, yeah. how it developed. I mean, that was a powerful tool. Uh, it was a powerful tool because it included more than just music. It was about style. It was about grace. It was a hometown label and everyone with very few exceptions, you know, came out of Detroit. They all went to high school together. Um, they all knew each other growing up. And so that hometown pride, but that it was so stylish. And first to have all the choreography uh, in terms of like pop groups, you know, um, everyone looked sharp. Uh, the whole kind of uh, factory assembly line approach was fascinating to me that everyone worked on each other's uh, stuff. And the songs themselves, they, it, they were, it had an unbelievably uplifting 
feel. And, you know, the little tagline was the sound of young America. Uh, and being young and being in Detroit, it was like it, as if you had invented all of it yourself. I mean, all my friends, even though none of them ended up going into, you know, music or anything, uh, everyone just felt like we are the coolest because we live in Detroit. So um, I, I took it a little too far, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, a, a just massive impact. And it was so popular um, worldwide. It was so popular. And I think, you know, it certainly changed that kind of pop soul um, approach to songwriting. Mm -hmm. So, and then you had groups like the Beatles, you know, covering Motown stuff. So it just got the ultimate stamp of approval. All right. So that was Allie Willis. And that concludes our two-part series all about Motown and the Motown sound. Now, I'm, I ain't too proud to beg <laughs> for just a little more time, but I'll be doggone if I don't have the uh, opportunity to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a roll there until you guys made me laugh. Wait, okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What's going on? <laughs> guys, is it just my imagination or was that just really quick? That was really, really quick. I didn't get to say I heard the symphony yet. Oh, well, maybe next time. You can time. say it now. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm coming. <laughs> All right, I think we've inserted enough Motown puns <laughs> to get us through the next couple it's months. It's the ABCs of puns right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to give us a, uh, a review on iTunes and a like on SoundCloud or whatever you can do over there. I'm not sure what you can actually do over there, but just make sure you leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. If you've got any suggestions for future podcasts, you can send those to library at nam.org and we will read through those. It's really hot in here. Are we having a heat wave? <laughs> you almost got me. Almost got me on that one. Oh, I think it's just a superstition. Ah, nice. okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Somebody better pull the plug. <laughs> Thanks right. for listening, guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.